everyone is a staff, Eddie. What are you afraid of? You can't get anywhere pretending to be someone you're not. But you regret it. No one will play queen. I didn't know his fancy dress for it. You look like an angry lizard. Freddie, could you tell us about the rumours concerning your sexuality? Queen, how long can that last? You don't make decisions for the band. Your life is going to be very difficult. My family. We believe in each other. That's everything. We're going to do great things. It's an experience. Love. Tragedy. Joy. Something that people will feel belongs to them. edition of the retro room this week we're talking movies specifically biopics historic fact-based films such as bohemian rhapsody we just heard clips from that film came out a few weeks ago the story of queen and freddie mercury their great lead singer but it has some scrutiny coming its way for getting a few things wrong misleading in some areas is this a trend that's acceptable when you're doing historic films We'll talk about it with Stephen Witte. He was a longtime movie critic for the Star Ledger and still doing great work with films. But first, let's talk about our sponsor, Jiminy's. Jiminy's makes a delicious dog treat that uses cricket protein. Yes, I said cricket protein, which is better than beef or chicken because, number one, it's sustainable. And Jiminy's uses less water and land than beef or chicken. That's Jiminy's at Jiminy's.com, J-I-M-I-N-Y-S. And I also have an announcement. My new book is out this week called Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. That's on Amazon.com. Check it out. Let me know what you think, and I'll have more information on upcoming events and issues related to the book soon. Now let's get to our interview with Stephen Witte right now. And hello, Stephen. Are you there? I am. How are you? Good. Good to talk to you. Stephen Witte, of course, longtime film critic for the Star-Ledger and Advanced Media in New Jersey from, I think you told me, 1997 to early 2018. And you had also, you've done uh, film criticism and writing for the Daily News and other outlets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you are also author of the Alfred Hitchcock Encyclopedia. That's right, which, you know, uh, which is was a true labor of love. You know, you sit down and you decide to write an encyclopedia all by yourself. <laughs> it's either a labor of love or, uh, you know, proof of insanity. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's out from Roman and Littlefield, and, and people can find it if they look hard enough. Excellent. Well, we're, we're looking at inaccuracies in movies, nonfiction movies, and it mm-hmm. sort of came off, in my view, after seeing Bohemian Rhapsody, the new movie about Queen, which I, I do recommend for Queen fans and non-fans because the music is great and the majority of the story is accurate from what we're finding. Mm-hmm. But there are several things that are not accurate. Um, right. And there's one 
article I looked at in Billboard.com, which looked at several things that were inaccurate about the movie without giving away too much. Uh, just came out a few weeks ago, so people still want to see it. There are inaccuracies about when Freddie Mercury joined Queen and how he joined them, that one of his love interests in the movie has started out as a servant in the film, but he wasn't. He was mm-hmm. someone he met years later. But I think the two biggest inaccuracies are that he, in the movie, it revolves around the Live Aid performance, the great Live Aid performance that Queen gave in 1985, right. that Freddie Mercury had been diagnosed with AIDS prior to the Live Aid performance. That's mm-hmm. what the movie depicts. And in reality, he was diagnosed two years later. Mm-hmm. And they also pitched it as Live Aid being a real reunion for Queen, that they hadn't performed in a long time. But in reality, they had performed for several months earlier that year. So those are some inaccuracies. And this is something we see in a lot of films. In terms of that one, what, what's your take? Is this just yeah, something well, people should expect? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, I, th- I think we're all used to these things in um you know, all, all of those films that begin, you know, based on a true story, you know, they're, they're based on a true story, but, but then it, it sort of gets less and less true as the movie goes on. And some of it is quite understandable. I mean, why would Bohemian Rhapsody have him being diagnosed with AIDS right before Live Aid when he was not? Why would they show that uh, the band had sort of, you know, broken up or was breaking up and then got together for this performance uh, for the first time, which is also not true. And I think that's just the, you know, the screenwriter wanting to make things as dramatic as possible. You know, often real life is dramatic enough, but, you know, screenwriters feel they sort of need to punch those moments. So obviously, you know, it, it invests that Live Aid performance with a lot more emotion if while you're watching it you're thinking oh geez you know this poor guy just got this horrible diagnosis and there he is out entertaining or you think uh, oh well it's so satisfying to see how this brought the band back together after they had split up when in fact they had already gotten back together so you know those, those are the kind of liberties that that people take with a film and whether or not it you know it it, it bothers you i mean depends i guess on how invested you are in the story and and in the real facts, and I'm well, maybe because I come to it as a reporter who likes to see you know factual information out there. There can be little things in movies, and I'm sure there are in almost every nonfiction film. Did someone wear a certain outfit, or was it sunny right. out, or was it right. was it rainy the day they make it look real? Whatever the that's sort of minor, but these seem to be pretty major issues. And you're right, it plays on the it plays on the uh, heartstrings. It makes it more dramatic. There's also a scene in the film where he's sort of comes to grips with his family accepting him as a bisexual and right. someone who's sort of a rebel and and they they this all happens on the day of live aid where information's coming out he's back with the family and i've also heard you know apart from you know factual inaccuracies you know there are thematic choices that the film makes that not everybody is happy with you know there i i know people who have seen the movie that says it uh, it sort of portrays freddie mercury's um sex life as being shady and sad and and um you know and 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 decadent and people who knew him saying look he he, he had a marvelous time <laughs> you know he was yeah. he was he was not really uh, really upset about his his lifestyle and you know sometimes movies are making various choices to to sell a picture to the widest possible audience another thing that often affects 
movies that are based on on real events, is who's still alive and who's controlling the story. Uh, you know, this movie uh, came about with the with the help and the um, and the and the guidance of the three surviving members yes. of the band. That's very um, And they had a very you know specific way that they wanted the story told. You know, there was a, mm-hmm. originally a version of this that was going to star Sasha Baron Cohen yes. as Freddie Mercury. And it had a completely different script. The band members, the surviving band members, really didn't think that Sasha Baron Cohen, who's obviously known mostly for his comedy, right. uh, they didn't think that he really took the whole idea and the whole character of Freddie Mercury seriously enough. Of course, the screenwriter said the real problem was that they wanted to be a bigger part of the story. You know, and they they wanted the movie to you know be spending as much time on you know on say Brian May as it was on Freddie Mercury, which uh, the screenwriter said is you know was going nowhere. You couldn't you couldn't really get a, a drama out of that. You really needed to focus on the lead singer. So um, you know there are all kinds of considerations that go into making a uh, making a based on fact film, and and facts are usually the last consideration that go into it. Was it thought maybe that Sasha Baron Cohen made it, might have made it more of a caricature? Yeah, I think that that I think that that was their their worry. And you know, and he is a pretty I mean, he can he can do he can do serious stuff. As a matter of fact, I think he's just been attached to this movie they're making of the Chicago 7 trial to play Abby Hoffman. Uh so that'd so, be an uh, interesting movie if it's Yeah, well so so he can he can do serious uh stuff, but I think, you know, they I, I think they heard that name and they just thought, you know, Borat and no, this is not this is not where we want this movie to go. Yes, and you're right. The the true Freddie Mercury was sort of not, it seemed from what I've read and, and heard of him, not sort of like you said, the dour sort of sad person. He said, look, this is who I am. Right. I'm gay. I'm bisexual. I'm a sort of a flamboyant person, but I'm going to go out right. and have fun. And I'm right. And you're right. The movie makes him seem a little bit down. Now, obviously, I'm sure he had his down moments. And, and yeah. but you're right. The the persona was plays into the uh, dramatic element, plays into the sympathetic character. He does come off as a very sympathetic person in terms of being a kind person to others. And who knows how yeah. true that was? Maybe when he was a big party flamboyant guy, he was kind of obnoxious. But I don't know. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously people, you know, pe- pe- people can be, but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, let's face it, uh, you know, the movie is a commercial enterprise. Uh, it wants to sell tickets. It wants to sell Queen's back catalog. You know, it wants to send people running out to uh, to buy those uh, those CDs uh, or, or get those downloads. You want to present something that, that is kind of upbeat and, and that is kind of mainstream. And also, along with that, you know, you want, you want a PG-13 rating. I mean, I'm sure if the movie was really accurate about who Freddie Mercury was, it would have a lot of trouble keeping that PG-13 rating. But, you know, things things get sort of, you know, softened and rounded, which doesn't mean that it's a bad movie or people won't have an enormously fun time seeing it. But there are all sorts of commercial considerations that, that are taken into account. Yes, and some of these rock movies, and a lot of them go back to the first one of, of recent times was really the Buddy Holly story, 1978. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary Busey was nominated for Best Actor. The movie got a lot of acclaim, but it also sparked a real backlash among the people who knew Holly. Of course, he was with the band The Crickets. And a few years ago, well, 2004, there was an interesting documentary created called The Real Buddy Holly Story, which this story tells the view from Sonny Curtis, who was one of the Crickets, which Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things the movie sort of misleads people is it has two 
uh, other bandmates, when in reality the Crickets spanned four, five, or six different members, and Sonny Curtis was one of them, and he says in the movie that after it came out, he was so offended by how many things it got wrong that he always wanted to get a true story. His name is Buddy Holly, and this is his story. I have a sound in my head, and so far it's not like anything we've done here. You said, let's get down here and make some records fast. Well, I'm here, and this is what we've done. Now, what do you call it? Probably a mistake, buddy. Every day it's getting closer, going faster than the coaster. Buddy, there's a phone call for you. Long distance, someplace in New York. New York, who the hell do you know in New York? You don't mean to stand there and tell me you're white. Oh. No white actors ever played the Apollo. The 2004 documentary includes Paul McCartney, uh, who Mm -hmm. was involved. It seemed like a very low-budget movie, so apparently McCartney really wanted the true story out. Yeah, well, he was an enormous. He was an. I mean, you know, people don't people don't think about this, perhaps, or or maybe even realize it. But, you know, I mean, the very name, the Beatles, was was kind of a pun on the crickets. Ah, you know, I mean, uh, he, he, you know that that band was a huge uh, a huge influence uh, on them, a uh, huge influence on on Paul uh, with the with the writing and the melody, uh, and I think it was kind of an influence on uh, John Lennon. It would, must have been really you know empowering to see a uh, you know a rock and roll star who wore glasses. <laughs> which which Buddy Holly did, which uh, not a lot of rock and rollers were doing back then. Yeah, I, I can I can see McCartney's uh, attachment to the story and wanting to tell the truth of it. Buddy Holly lives every time we play rock and roll. That's Sonny Curtis singing about his old friend Buddy Holly. Sonny wrote the song after he'd been to see a movie called The Buddy Holly Story, which may have been a lot of laughs, but it was hardly the true story. So Sonny wrote the song to try and put the record straight. I've always loved Buddy's music, and he's been a big influence on me. So I wanted to make a film that would allow his family and friends to share their memories of him with us. So here it is. It's my tribute to Buddy the real Buddy Holly story. And it, it rarely gets told. I, I tell you, I mean, one thing that's, uh, that's skipped over all the time in, in, in rock movies, most of them anyway, is the actual business of, of making a song. You know, uh, what, what goes into composition, what goes into uh, the recording studio, how do these things come about? You know, that, uh, the, the film that they came out with a couple of years ago about, um, uh, about Brian Wilson with, uh, mm. with John Cusack, that was better than most because um, there was a whole sequence in that where they showed you what it was like to try and record pet sounds and what was going through his mind and, and how he managed to make that record. Remember, it's the uh, 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 higher octave on the upbeats in the bridge. Hey, Brian. I love that. Brian. Yeah. I think you might have screwed up here. Really? Let me see. Well, you've got Lyle playing in D, and the rest of us are in A major. Yeah, that's right. How does that work? Two bass lines in two different keys? Well, it works in my head. I mean, it's all playing in my head, the orchestration, and the five vocal parts. I think it's going to work. Let's try it. Oh, oh, Al, Al, here's how I want you to do it. Go to the, uh... Boom, two. 
three, four, ba-doom. So it's uh, the, the first beat on the last bar of the intro. Boom, two, three, four, ba-doom. That was that was really interesting, but you know that's that's something that um, you know that that most rock bios just don't seem to have time for. They just want to get to you know here he is being discovered, here he is on the rise up, here are his problems with you know women or drugs or whatever, and you know and then we have a comeback special or or he dies tragically. Uh, you know they don't want to go into sort of the nitty gritty of what it's like to to build a career as a, as an artist. Well, in the Queen movie, great scenes when they record Bohemian Rhapsody, the big anthem they. Uh, have that obviously it's the title mm-hmm. of the film there's some great scenes where they're recording bits and pieces of that and how difficult it was and and all that went into that how was that higher can you go a bit higher if i go any higher only dogs will hear me try higher how many more Galileos do you want? Very, very one more, one more. One more. Galileo! 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 Again. Go on. Roll the track. Galileo! 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 Are we done? That's it. And I know in another movie, sort of related to the Buddy Holly story, La Bamba has some mm-hmm. great scenes where he's recording, uh, I think, his first or second song, and he has to keep doing it over and over. And, uh, now, who knows? I think it was 58 takes in the movie to uh-huh. do uh, Come On, Let's Go or uh, one of the other songs. Now, who knows if he really did do 58 takes? Come on, come on, let's go. And again, and again, and again. Uh, that's more right on, Richie, but that little darling line, I like that better, all right? Well, 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 well. well. I don't see what's wrong with some of those takes, man. That's the way I sing. It's got to be clean, Richie. Each take has to be identical. Why? So that we can edit later. Look, how many more takes? As many as it takes, okay? Oh, well, baby, I love you so. And I'll never let you go. So come on, baby, come on home. Oh, pretty baby, I love you so well. That was good. That was good. Should I get a new roll of tape? No, I think we got him. It did show what it was like to record, whether it's Queen or Richie Valens or anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, the sort of background um, and the, what goes into day after day after day. There's a great documentary of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I'm trying to remember if it was HBO or Showtime in the last couple of years that showed what a great perfectionist he was. A great perfectionist in that he, I think there was a, the uh, long saxophone in Jungle Land that took months, according to this documentary, and he would tear his hair out over little tiny things and keep the band waiting forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Now, that's a documentary. You can do a little more, but yeah, all these movies that depict how that process goes, if they do it right, you're right, that's something that, that I think a lot of people don't realize. I'm no musician. I don't know what it's like to be in a recording studio for days right. and freak yourself right. out trying to get the story right. In the uh, Buddy Holly story, also, there was a few things that the real Buddy Holly story indicates that things like there was the scene where he's in Nashville and he has a big fight with the producers over an album trying to do their first recording and according to Curtis and others that wasn't true that they actually did some mm-hmm. recording in Nashville and I think the way his first song came out was mishandled when it's bad enough to force certain people to make a documentary to correct the story that right. would seem to be a real impact 
Right. Or is this just what we have to come to assume when we see these kind of biopics, that not everything's going to be accurate, they'll play with things for dramatic effect, or should there be a more reality demand by uh, both producers and the audience? Well, you know, it's, you know I, I, I think if you're, if you're going to see a, a, a biopic, if you're going to see a, you know, a, a dramatized slice of life, I mean, that's just it. It's, it's been dramatized. It, things have been changed. You know, I think we should expect that. You know, it's just how true are they to the, you know, the, the actual quote-unquote truth of the thing? You know, do they get, do they get the, the, the people's motivations correct? Do they get the, the feeling of the time correct? I mean, for example, I saw, uh, I, I, I showed down at, down at uh, Montclair State, we had a screening of Dog Day Afternoon, which is oh, like, a great movie. Yeah. I love that movie. A lot of that was not drawn from real dialogue. In fact, a lot of that were the actors just improvising with each other. Mm. You know, if you remember Al Pacino's, you know, <laughs> bank robbing colleague, uh, who's, who's played by the, the great uh, John Cazale, he's this very sort of morose, uh, edgy, balding character. Right. Uh, and actually, the guy who, who, the real bank robber, his, his partner uh, was, you know, someone he was sleeping with at the time and was a young guy. And he, he certainly didn't look at all like, like this character, who, uh, if you remember in the movie, actually gets very upset when someone assumes that he's gay. And yes. like the, the TV news are saying that, you know, two homosexuals are robbing a bank. And he gets very upset about that. Our coverage of the Brooklyn robbery, where two homosexuals are holding hostages for their demands of a helicopter, a jet, Funny. and safe passage out. Funny. They said on a TV, two homosexuals in a bank, right on TV. Did you hear what they said? What difference does it make? It don't matter. They're going to say anything they want. Let them say. Well, I'm not a homosexual. You tell them to get that right. Now, that's, that's, that's going out on the TV. Sal, what am I supposed to do, you know? I can't control what they say on television. I mean, what do you expect me to do? I mean, I'm doing everything I can. I can't do that. Forget about it. It's just a freak show to them anyway. It don't matter. Whatever they say, it don't matter. So there are things that these uh, these pictures change. There are things that they just make up. I was a big fan of uh, uh, the Helen Mirren picture, The Queen. Yes, uh, that's that's a terrifically well-acted movie. It's a very engrossing movie about uh, the death of Princess Diana and all the events that happened after it. But during the course of that movie, it not only presents recreations of uh, conversations that the Queen is supposedly having with Prime Minister Tony Blair, it reproduces conversations that she's having with Prince Philip. How are the boys? Not so good tonight. A lot of slamming doors. I think they saw the papers. Oh, no. I'll take them out early again tomorrow morning. Let them take it out on the stag. Have you seen the latest funeral guest list? No. I suggest you keep it that way. A chorus line of soap stars and homosexuals. Apparently, Elton John is going to be singing. That'll be a first for Westminster Abbey. Now, I guarantee that nobody knows, besides Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth, what they really talk about uh, in, in the royal bedroom late at night. But, you know, you, you sort of need that scene there for dramatic purposes, so the screenwriter just kind of makes it up. And, you know, does it sound like what those characters would say? Does it, is it conveying the kind of emotions that we probably are, are safe in assuming they had? Well, if it does, it's, it's, it's good drama, but, you know, it's not necessarily good history. And do we know if the portrayal of her was fair or if there was even anyone from the family or who know the queen who, who was involved in, in maybe trying to steer the film a certain way? It showed her as kind of kind of aloof, which I guess the queen would be, but sort yeah. of softening near the end, but sort of very anti-Diana. 
Yeah. Um, and well, obviously, I, I, the uh, the portrayal of Prince Philip was, was very mean. Uh, you know, again, it's it's. I, I think it's accurate to yeah. how we see them. Sure. Um, I'm sure the royal family wasn't involved at all in the production of this yeah. film. And it has to be really extreme for them to ever issue any kind of statement about the, the, the media or the press or, or the way the entertainment you know, world portrays them. They just, uh, you know, they just keep a sort of dignified silence yeah. about, about Did all they of seem it. to have any response to it, do you recall? I don't remember yeah. there being any. any Nothing jumps out. Yeah. They all seem to have uh, depict Prince Charles pretty uh, positively. Which yeah. I wonder how true that was. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know, but you know, this is true of, uh, you know, we don't have to blame it all on Hollywood. I mean, this is true of, um, this is true of regular, you know, fact-checked biographies as well. You know, you can, you, you you'll read something. Uh, for example, there was a recent uh, biography of uh, the Duchess uh, Camilla Parker Bowles, mm-hmm. and uh, it was, uh, you know, and, and she had been vilified in the press for, you know, for quite a while as, you know, sort of the woman who who broke up. Uh, Charles and Diana's marriage. Well, actually, this is a very sympathetic book. It's mm-hmm. a, a, a very sympathetic to her, and and really extremely cutting uh, about Princess Diana. But you know, as you as you sort of read between the lines and you read the the end notes and the footnotes and everything else, you realize, oh, Camilla was a source for this book. Uh, so of course she's going to be portrayed in a, in a in a certain way. You know, she was she was someone the the writer was really relying on for information. She and you know her her confidants and her friends. So, you know, I mean, we see that kind of slant and bias. I mean, you know, my gosh, I mean, we see it in, uh, you know, the hard news stories that, that come out of Washington. You know, you read between the lines and you can sort of figure out, oh, this was their source on this story. You know, this is who they're sort of trying to protect or trying to advance or, you know, I mean, that's that's just part of it. And as you mentioned earlier in the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody movie, Roger Taylor and Brian May, the two members of uh, other members of Queen, were very right. involved. I believe they were even producers or executive producers, or they're in the credits more than just as characters. Right. So right. that's why it might have been come off the way it did. And then some of these other rock movies, there was a piece about La Bamba, which was 1987, in the book uh, History in the Media, Film, and Television. I read a, a piece they had that said uh-huh. they had some misinformation. It didn't seem to be as misleading as the Buddy Holly story, but it said small things. Like in the movie, obviously, his girlfriend Donna is a big inspiration, but it claims that they were not as close as the movie indicates which, as mm-hmm. the book put it, they had the two of them uh, nearing marriage uh, kind of view of them, but in reality they had only been together a little while. And it also depicted his family as being a lot poorer than they apparently really were. They're basically out in, a, uh, I guess, a migrant farm of some sort. Mm-hmm. But in reality, according to the book, they were you know low-income people, but they lived in regular home in the suburbs mm-hmm. of Pacoima, of, uh, suburbs of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. and that that was sort of misleading, but obviously makes him a more uh, sympathetic character, and that his his uh, stepbrother, Bob, who's played by E.C. Morales in a really good performance, I thought, mm-hmm. was not as volatile as the movie suggests, but that's, again, not a major part of the film. Yeah, yeah, I mean, all sorts of things... All sorts of things influence a, a portrayal. I tell you, a, a, a big thing which, which affects uh, the music bios that we see is who has the rights for the music. If if it's the family, you know, uh, that has the rights to those to those songs, then it can become extremely tricky because if you don't have their cooperation on the story that you've written, they're not going to give their you know their approval for you to use the music. And there there was, for example, a. Um, 
uh, a movie that came out a couple of years ago about Jimi Hendrix, and it was about it was interesting. It was about a very specific point in Hendrix's life when he had he had been playing in America for a while, but you know mostly as a backup guy, right? And sure. he'd gone to London, and this was where he suddenly, you know, where he became Jimi Hendrix and became this amazing sensation. And so that was the period that the film was focusing on, which I thought was fascinating. But the problem that they had was that uh, the family wanted to make their own movie. They were not going to help uh, these people make theirs. So they refused to give them the rights to any of the songs that uh, Hendrix had written. So then you have to sort of like, okay, well, we can't, you know, we can't have him playing Purple Haze. We can't have him playing this. We can't have him playing that. And then it becomes a much more difficult, you know, project. And, you know, and these family squabbles or their interests uh, complicate a lot of things. I mean, I, I, several times there have been biopics announced, oh, you know, they're going to shoot uh, a big film biography of Janis Joplin, you know, and then the families get involved and, and people are starting to talk about rights and suddenly it, it, it stalls and it never gets made. Yeah, that would be a great one. I mean, I'm a big Janis Joplin fan and her story is so interesting and her whole you know, persona that yeah, yeah, if you but you can't make a movie like especially about Hendrix or any of these people without the music. That would seem seem difficult. Right. That's what's the point? It's yeah. real. Have you heard anything down the line about a Janis Joplin movie going anywhere? I heard years ago Edie Brickell was being talked about. I don't know how far back or how involved. Yeah, I mean, but there are plenty of people who could point, play her. Yeah, there were there were two dueling projects a while ago. Really. Uh, that was sort of racing each other to the to the screen. I, I don't know where those went. I don't know what happened to those, honestly. But you know, things get you know things things go into sort of limbo for a while, and then they get revived, and then they come back, and you know. So the other interesting thing is when you have actors singing the songs. In mm-hmm. Rhapsody, I believe Rami Malek does the singing. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is him yeah. and how much of that is lip synced. I mean, because Freddie Mercury he had, he had he had close to a four octave range. Yeah. I mean, he had an amazing, It'd be very hard to, Im- voice. to to imitate him. Right. You know, uh, it's not like you know. I mean, uh, I, you know, I think all of us, you know, after after a pint or two, could could throw off a Bob Dylan imitation. That that's not the hardest thing in the world, but to get out there and and sing like Freddie Mercury or sing. like like Janis Joplin, you know, sing like, you know, one of these amazing, sing like Aretha Franklin, my gosh, you know, that, that takes some, some real talent. Uh, And, and there's another person whose story, you know, there've been a lot of attempts to make a film bio of Aretha Franklin uh, going back. I mean, she was still alive when many of them were being talked about. And I think, I think she herself had said she'd like the idea of Jennifer Hudson playing her. But um, I don't know, um, you know, I don't know where that project is these days. One of the research pieces I found said that it was Malik mixed together with a Mark Mattel who had done imitations of Queen and he had lip synced to him. Ah, okay. And then it was very little Freddie Mercury, but it was not his direct voice, correct? Yeah, yeah, that, would, would, yeah that would could, make sense. I imagine you could play with voices so much more now than, you know, back in the Buddy Holly days, or, or I should say the Buddy Holly story days. Right. But also a, a movie that came out around the time of the Buddy Holly story was uh, Coal Miner's Daughter, or maybe a few years mm-hmm. later. No, 1980, I think, Coal Miner's Daughter. Right. And Sissy Spacek sang in that movie. She did. Yeah, yeah she did. And very but, well, you know, I would uh, imagine. She won she Best did, Actress. But, um, when she first came to, when she left little you know, small town Texas behind and came to New York, uh, I think one of her first uh, passions was singing. You know, she was she was coming here and she was going to be, uh, you know, a, a a folk singer. And she even uh, she even recorded uh, a, a couple of tunes that went nowhere. Uh, so she had she had the chops. You know, she could she could actually sing. But not everybody 
they can. And one of the other movies that I wanted to mention that's one of the biopics was Great Balls of Fire, which is the Jerry Lee Lewis biopic, which... Uh, right. Some of the that's reviews, great. I came across a yeah. Guardian article on it years ago, I guess it was one of the anniversaries, that said it made it was way too positive when you look at Jerry Lee Lewis's life at the time. He had been married twice. He was a Right, including to his 13-year-old cousin. His, his 13-year-old cousin, which they yeah. mentioned uh, she was 12 when they met, and he was 21. Uh-huh. Yeah. He was still married, to, he was, so he was a bigamist. Right. He was having relations with this underage girl. But it also mentions that marriage was legal at the time for underage certain ages, but with parental mm-hmm. advice. And right. that uh, he was also fooling around on the side, but they, they try to sort of shake that off. No no pun intended with his song, yeah. a lot of shaking. But you know, d- does that get a surprising positive reaction given that, although it ends with his, his career basically getting slammed when he goes to England and it comes out that he married his cousin. Too positive of a, of a portrayal of what many would think is a negative person or? Well, you know, I don't need a movie to sort of wag at figurative finger in my face and say, look, this is a bad man. You know, at the same time, I don't, I don't need it to, to candy coat stuff. Right. Um, you know, the most, the most interesting people are not necessarily the nicest people, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, sometimes some of the bad things they do is, uh, those are the things that make them complicated and worth studying. Movies are going to, you know, soften some edges, and I, I, I just don't think they should totally twist the truth. You know, right. I mean, in that a, case, it's the opposite of what we're discussing. Yeah. It's very accurate. Um, yeah. So you can give it points for that. There's also, there hasn't been a real Elvis Presley definitive biopic. Um, there was obviously the Kurt Russell TV movie years right. ago, which right. had its own issues, but never got into the fact that, and I'm, again, I'm a big Elvis fan too. He, uh, when his wife Priscilla came to live with him, she was only 14. Right. He was at least 21, 22, 23. That's Priscilla Presley. She claims in her own book that they never had sexual relations until they were married. Right. Um, which could very well be true because Elvis was probably with many other women. But in reality, her father, who was an Air Force colonel, allowed her to move to Graceland and live with this rock and roll star at the age of 14. Yeah. And with, I mean, very little oversight. One would think that seems like a, a, a part of Elvis's background that never really gets examined. Is there any time in the future you see a, a real Elvis biopic coming, or has there been too much on him already? Well, I don't know. I mean, he seems to be, you know, perpetually yeah. fascinating to people. You know, people keep keep rediscovering him and rediscovering his music. You know, it's just, but, you know, I, I think just the, the difficulty with, uh, with doing an, an Elvis biopic is that there's so much footage of the real man out there. You know, there's, there's, the, the, there's the comeback special. There are all the clips. There were the really great early Elvis movies like Jailhouse Rock and the really bad, cheesy ones like Change of Habit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they're all out there and on TV all the time. So that's a difficult thing. You know, that's harder than, say, Angela Bassett putting on a wig and doing Tina Turner. You know, well, we sort of know what Tina Turner looks like and sounds like. But mm-hmm. um, there isn't literally, you know, 50 hours of, of footage <laughs> of her that's, that's on TV all the time. It would seem that there might be an opportunity for something if you look at a specific point in his career. Maybe along the lines of a Frost Nixon or, uh, or, a, or the Queen, you know, the Queen movie was wasn't right. about Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth's life. It was about one specific point of a very controversial moment. The Frost right. Nixon was about this 
the making of these interesting interviews, which was a great way to look at both David Frost and Nixon. And I think a lot of people like the portrayal of Nixon by Frank Langella as, as more accurate than a lot of them. A lot of the Nixon portrayals come off caricature-ish to me, but I thought Langella in that movie gave him some humanity, and it looked at just a specific point, uh, a specific time and, uh, and one moment that they were examining. Maybe if you took an Elvis picture that looked at maybe how the 68 comeback special came about, or right. his final right. days, or I don't know. Does that seem appealing? You know, it's like the it's like the Hendrix movie I was uh, mentioning before. I think it's always better when you take a very specific but formative episode from the person's life and just sort of focus on that rather than trying to tell the whole birth to death story. I mean, those can be interesting, but um, you know, it just imagine how much time you would have to, to put in to tell all of John Lennon's life in a in, in a single movie. I mean, you know, from you know from the childhood that he had, the death of his mother, through the you know starting the Beatles, through breaking up the Beatles, through the drugs, through the politics, through the I mean, there's just so much in there that you know it would it's probably a better thing to focus on on one one episode from from a famous person's life, you know, a couple of years, than try and get the whole thing up there. Yeah, and it seems like like the Nixon movie, uh, and I know Oliver Stone pops up in a few of the things I read about inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. His Nixon movie, I thought, it has some inaccuracies or at least uncertain things. And the portrayal of Nixon by Anthony Hopkins seemed a little bit over the top. It had in a sort of a paranoid uh, person, which obviously Nixon had his paranoias, but it had it had Stone going into his dreams and, and that he yeah. dreamed about certain things. They even sort of hint that the fact that he was in Dallas the night before Kennedy was killed, which I believe is true, they had a scene where it, it sort of hints that he knew about it in advance without any real proof of that at all. I don't think you know how much people hate Kennedy down here. Hell, he's coming to town tomorrow, and I guarantee you they will run his ass out of town on a rail. Damn right. It's true. Now, we are willing to give you a shit pot full of money to get rid of him. More than you ever dreamed of. Nobody's going to beat Kennedy in 64 with all the money in the world. Suppose Kennedy don't run in 64. <laughs> Not a chance. Well, gentlemen, I promised my wife I, uh, I'm out of politics. Hey. Your country needs you. Unfortunately, the country's not available right now. Yeah, well, you know, in, in, in JFK, Oliver Stone sort of hints that LBJ knew about yeah, it. Yeah, that's fans. another movie I mean, that had a lot of uh, inaccuracies. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's, it's just sort of, it's sort of made up history. And, um, you know, uh, and, and, that, and that's, I think... Uh, you know, we're we're talking about this, and and you know, maybe it maybe it doesn't matter an, an awful lot in the end if um, you know if someone gets some some facts wrong about you know about Buddy Holly's career um, or about or about Freddie Mercury's life. But um, you know, when you're when you're putting out movies that sort of purport to be the the, the real story, and uh, and they're full of all this misleading or or completely you know speculative information, I don't know that you're really doing audiences. A, a service. I mean, I'm sure there are people who saw JFK, the Oliver Stone movie, and and accepted it as fact because you know there it is. It's up on the screen. It's you know this may be you know what really happened. And I don't think that's particularly helpful. Right. And in the JFK movie, one of the things this uh, website Screen Rant had some great stories on that uh, it was based on a uh, the case of Jim Garrison, who was the the DA who who tried to uh, prosecute someone for Ken- uh, for Kennedy's death. Right. Um, they, but points out there are confessions that weren't real. There are things you mentioned that there's a hint that LBJ was involved, which it's not the first time that's been brought up, but without any real evidence. Right. Um, and right. he also had uh, the Doors movie when you talk about rock uh, movies. 
there mm-hmm. were some issues in that that were thought to be questionable. Um, how uh, Jim Morrison met uh, his future wife, and also uh, right. like, uh, Ray Van Zarek was interviewed shortly after that movie came out, which came out in 1991, who said they really showed Morrison more of a drunk than he really was. Obviously, he was a big drinker, but they mm-hmm. said it was it was too sort of one-sided and, and mm-hmm. one-dimensional. And also that the there's a scene where they're on the Ed Sullivan show and they're told not to sing Light My Fire with the word higher in it, that that didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, little things. Now, again, that may not matter, but you're right. It, sometimes people People will see something on film and take it as fact just because right. it's in front of them. Is is that something we people need to be more warned about? Well, you know, I think it's uh, the decline of, uh, of journalism, and, and that's certainly a problem because when we had a more robust world of, of journalism there, and particularly art journalism, you would see stories about this before or after a film had come out. I mean, I remember when there was the uh, the Denzel Washington film, uh, Hurricane, about Hurricane Carter. Yes, oh, that got a lot of, a lot of backlash. Right, and, you know, at at that time, you know, people and and I was one of them. Uh, you know, we were writing stories saying, well, you know, this this is a very inspiring story, but it's not a hundred percent true. You know, there are things here that are that are made up, and there are things here, and you know, and again, talking about how who you work with influences the story that you tell. It gave his. Um, his Canadian advocates a much larger role in the movie than than they had in real life. So you know, I, I, when you have when you have, as I said, a really vibrant you know media world of of arts journalism and and entertainment writers, then you have people digging into this stuff and saying, well, look, you know, this movie's all very well and good, but you know, this isn't quite right, and this isn't. But uh, you know, we don't. You know, a lot of those positions have been lost. A lot of those people aren't writing anymore. Those papers have closed down, and and. So so, um, you know, it's it's more likely that people, um, you know, just sort of take things on, on faith uh, when maybe they shouldn't. <laughs> and I want to mention two other movies that are historic, both involving Ben Affleck. One of them is one of my favorite movies, Argo, which I would still mm-hmm. strongly recommend to people because I think the general story is very good and the uh, acting and the, the way it's told. But there is, uh, as the Screen Rants piece and others point out, the American government resistance to the film crew plan is a contention, as they said. There was never an issue that, you know, they have the CAA. Uh, for those who don't remember, the movie Argo was the uh, story of the six U.S. hostages, the Iran, uh, when the Iranian embassy was taken over, U.S. embassy in Iran was taken over. Right. There were six people lived there, who worked there who escaped and stayed with the Canadian ambassador, and they eventually mm-hmm. were snuck out, in part because there was the creation of a false uh, film crew called Argo, and that the CIA leadership was against the plan at one point, and that's just not true. And also, there's a scene at the end where they're leaving uh, Iran. That rush to the that rush to the airport. Yeah, there's rush really to the happen. airport, <laughs> and there's uh, Iranians running down the runway to try to stop. Right. Them. Of course, that never happened either. Right. Right. Never. But it no, also never said happened. that it didn't give the Canadian government. This is what one reviewer thought. I thought it it gave them fair. Uh, well, they thought they played a, a, a much larger role in this than they were given given credit for, you know, which which may or may not be true. But um, I remember when um, Saving Private Ryan came out on a on a publicity junket for that film with a number of Canadian journalists, uh, and they were ticked off as as all hell because their point of view was, hey, we were a big part of D Day, and this movie makes it look like it was a totally American operation, and that uh, you know your allies weren't there, you know, fighting and dying alongside you, you know, you're just never going to. Uh, and, and, the, and the same thing came out with Dunkirk, um, you know, recently when that came out. 
there were there were folks who said, look, you know, the, you had a lot of colonial soldiers, you had a lot of British soldiers from India uh, who were part of uh, who were part of that effort, and you know, you don't see, uh, you know, there's not a single one of them, or maybe just one in the background that makes it to the screen. So. You know the, the the stories we tell sometimes leave out important people. You know that's that's a shame because uh, they're they're stories that need to be told in 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 their fullness. There's also one another Ben Affleck movie that didn't do as well as Argo, which would be Pearl Harbor, the 2001 mm. uh, story of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. There was criticism that the Japanese fighters were not shot down as many as there were in the movie. Um, right, and I've, there's also a scene in the movie where the, they have the planes, the Japanese planes coming in. It was a Sunday morning. Uh, the Japanese planes are coming into Hawaii, and there's a scene where they're flying over some youngsters playing baseball, who they probably wouldn't be playing baseball at six, seven a.m. on a Sunday. Right, on a Sunday so morning. That's, again, that's a small, minor thing, but uh, there are yeah. also other larger things about the use of origami in the movie that Americans didn't really discover till after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there also is a scene where President Roosevelt stands up from his wheelchair to make a speech, <laughs> which never happened or would have happened. Right. But again, right. are these major parts? Uh, I think it's kind of fun sometimes when these inaccuracies come up. People use them as sort of trivial, interesting trivia bits. Um, there doesn't seem to be any that had major changes. One of the biggest, though, is uh, also another favorite from The Pride of the Yankees, which was the subject of a good book the last year or two called The Pride of the Yankees, Lou Gehrig, Gary Cooper, and the Making of a classic, which is a really good book about the background. It talks about how his wife was very involved in the movie, and uh, it also corrects the uh, falsehood that Gary Cooper, Cooper, who was uh, right-handed, had to bat left-handed, and they reversed the film, which is not true. He did have to learn how to bat a different way and how that Mm -hmm. came about. But one of the biggest falsities in the movie is uh, that in the uh, scene where he's with the little boy in the hospital and he hits two home runs for him, which never happened. But again, movies of that time, I would sure think, took great liberties with a lot of things Yeah, beyond even this. But also there's a good book about Gehrig called Luckiest Man that came out a few years ago, which Mm -hmm. talks about after he was diagnosed, he didn't just go off and die like in the movie. They kind of portray him walking off the field. He did a lot of searching and research for a cure. He went to the Mayo Clinic very often Mm -hmm. for years, right up till his death, trying to find Mm -hmm. a cure, trying to fight it, which to me would have been an interesting story in itself, kind of as he tried to to battle this terrible disease Mm -hmm. uh, that he didn't just give up. But again, you can't put everything in the same movie. So what's the final word on, you know, these inaccuracies or trying to depict real people in the movies? Is it just you're going to make mistakes or change things for dramatic effect or is it laziness? Well, you know, I, I, I think uh, I, I don't think too much of it is laziness. I think it's it's mostly, you know, it, it, it's the writers and, and, and the directors and, and the stars as well. Uh, you know, the, 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 the director wants a movie and certainly hit the, the people giving him or her the money for it want a movie that's going to appeal to the largest number of people possible. You know, for Bohemian Rhapsody to turn a profit, it can't just play to fans of Queen. It has to play to everybody right. uh, who might be interested in this story. So, you know, you have, the, you have the filmmakers who are trying to sort of sand off the rough edges to make it as appealing to as large an audience as they can. You have the writer who wants really dramatic moments. So if that means that he has someone get sick two years before he gets sick, or he has someone have a big blow-up when it never happened, he's going to put that in the in the script. And then also you have, you have uh, actors who sometimes they don't want to 
play a very negative person, or mm. they don't want to. Uh, they don't want to end on a on a down note. You know, they want this this character arc of uh, you know redemption written into the into the piece. So you know, all of that has to has to bear on it. But I think ultimately, what we're talking about is that you know, a a, a movie is a movie is a movie, and you should go and you should see it and you should enjoy it and 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 thrill to it. Um, but then when you get home, you know, go online, go to the library, uh, and and read the real story behind these people because sometimes it's even more interesting and uh, it's often more complicated than the entertainment you just walked out of. Yes, and oh, you mentioned earlier Dog Day Afternoon. There was a good documentary a couple of years ago. Yes. It just came out called The Dog, uh, which right. had the actual Sonny Wurtzik was his name in the movie. I don't remember his real name. Right. Um, in, in real life, it was, uh, and, and this is a name that pops up on Barney yeah. Miller. I think he's Wojciechowicz. I think that was yes. the guy's real name. It's an interesting story to kind of back. Yeah. He, he seemed to think a lot of it was accurate, but I think he had trouble with some other parts of it. But he seemed, yeah. but again, a good way to get the whole picture. And there was also a recent Serpico documentary. Frank Serpico spoke mm -hmm. about, he said there were generally uh, correct elements in, in the Serpico movie, but he did have some problem with some small parts. And uh, I think he was also involved in the making of Serpico. It was based on his book. So, yeah. And that yeah. was another Sidney Lumet movie. Uh, yes, it was. Dark yeah. Day Afternoon was. You're right. It's hard to tell the whole story in two, two and a half hours. But nowadays, there are these documentaries that keep coming out. And obviously, we had another one that's going to be interesting to see is the Mr. Rogers movie. There is a movie, mm -hmm. a documentary just came out this year called Won't You Be My Neighbor about Fred Rogers, who was right. Mr. Rogers. And now Tom Hanks is going to portray him in a uh, biopic, I believe, due to come out next year. And it'll be interesting to see how those are received or not. Another movie, and I'll just be able to quick mention of, uh, we mentioned Tom Hanks. He was in the movie about Sully Sullenberger, the, uh, mm -hmm. the captain of the sh uh, the plane that landed in the Hudson. That got a lot of criticism because some it seemed to try to paint it as a controversial thing where he was under scrutiny for maybe not doing things the right way, which never mm -hmm. really was the case. Right. That movie didn't do that well either. I don't know if that's for that reason or not. That's another Tom Hanks likes to play a lot of yeah. people. He just played Ben Bradley in The Pose. And the other captain, what was the captain on the ship that was... I think it was Captain Phillips or captain something. Captain Phillips, like I think that had yeah. some controversy. I don't know, maybe Hanks likes to play certain people that he... And he brings such an authenticity to so many things. I wonder if he takes on roles that maybe people will believe because he is such a, you know, such a liked and positive mm -hmm. figure in Hollywood. What, what's sort of his uh, reputation on and the, when he's portraying real people? Tom Hanks is a is a um, you know is a is a very dedicated actor who I'm sure does you know all the research that he can and uh, you know goes as deeply into um, you know a character as he can you know wh whether or not he's believable in those roles is you know is another question but uh, but I, I'm sure he's researched them. It'll be interesting to see how he he handles Mr. Rogers and other such uh, portrayals. But anyway, I appreciate your time. We'll let you go again. We've been talking to Stephen Witte, longtime film critic at the Star Ledger and other outlets, and author of course of the Alfred Hitchcock Encyclopedia you could find his work online in many places and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon all right thanks for the talk thank you sir be well okay you too bye-bye that's all for this week's edition of the retro room we want to thank Stephen Witte want to thank you for listening and our sponsor Jiminy's Dog Treats remember cricket protein is hypoallergenic humane nutritious and delicious and it fights climate change that's Jiminy's Dog Treats at Jiminy's.com j-i-m-i-n-y-s Com. And I also want to remind you that my book is coming out, Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. It's up at Amazon.com, ready for you to check it out and let me know what you think. Until then, tune in next week, and thank you for listening.